Heavenly Father, we come to you again today and study the Word. Lord, this guide and direct our lives. You know, we go through so many things here at times in our lives, and we see situations within our country and with our world conditions. That, uh, Lord, we know you don't care for it. So, Lord, we just ask that you will bless those people that are suffering so much throughout the world and, and uh, leaders that have turned their backs on you. So, Lord, thank you for your love and kindness that you give us day by day in your name. Amen. It is a crazy world. Yes. All sorts of shenanigans going on in Washington, D.C. right now. So, the question that um, all of us ask, whether you ask it intentionally or unintentionally or explicitly or implicitly every day, is, is God good and can he be trusted? Um, even the unbeliever asks that question. You know, that's why they talk about in a foxhole, there are no atheists, right? Um, it seems to be very fundamental to who we are, to know uh, who God is and can he be trusted? Is he good? Can he be trusted? So I thought we'd start out <clears throat> this morning in Psalm 62. Psalm 62. person that gets there and wants to read it out, go for it. I read quietly before God, in my victory times with men. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, where I will never be. So many enemies against one man, all of them trying to kill me. To them, I'm just broken down the wall of pottery tent. They wouldn't talk to me to my high position. They delight in telling lies about me. They praise me to my face, but curse me. Let all that I can lay quietly before God, for my hope is in man. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress where I will not be shaken. My victory and honor come from God alone. He is my refuge, a rock where no enemy can reach me. O oh, my people, trust in him at all times. Pour your heart to him, for God is our refuge. Common people are as worthless as a tub of wind, and the powerful are not what they appear to be. If you weigh them on the scales, together they are lighter than a breath of air. Don't make your hope of distortion, don't make your hope of stealing, and if you're all going to be able to make it the center of your life. God has spoken plainly, and I have heard it many times. The power of God belongs to you, unfailing love for the Lord of the Truly, you should all be referring to what they have Amen. So, question for you guys this morning is, is God good? So when I asked that earlier, I wrote it on the board, is God good? Um, Bob immediately answered, yes. So how do you know that? Tell me how you know God is good. Nobody else would die for me. Nobody else would die for you. So where does it, where do you, how do you know that God died for you? 
Faith? Scripture. Where is it in Scripture that God died for us? Might even be close to what we're studying today. So we've been looking at, in Hebrews, um, what God has done for us. And that um, when we say that God is good, um, we're describing God and uh, in, in some ways it's one of his attributes. But in fact, all of his attributes flow from his goodness. Uh, if God wasn't good, you wouldn't see a holy God. You wouldn't see a righteous God. Uh, you wouldn't see truth displayed throughout the universe. You wouldn't see love. Right? So God being good is fundamental to his character. But God's being good, being fundamental to his character, also affects us. It affects us in that he created us and gave, gave us the breath of life to be in communion with him. And when we were separated from him through our own failure, he himself stepped in the gap to make it possible for us to be joined back in communion with him. Right? That's what it means when it says God is good. And we see that throughout scripture, but we've been looking at that in Hebrews up through chapter 10. Right? As we've studied through, we've looked at the role of, of who the Son is uh, as the Son of God, Son of Man, and uh, specifically uh, in his role as high priest over a new covenant. And that in that role, we, we saw what the meaning is of what I call the cultic system, the practice of uh, sacrifice within uh, the temple walls or within the, the court of the temple and within the, uh, the temple itself in the offerings that are made there and ultimately in presenting uh, offering sacrifice on the mercy seat of God the place where God is present with his people, right? So we've seen what the meaning of that really is. We have a practice that we do in the world, but that really means something, uh, not just in this world, but there's a, uh, it's, it's a pattern that we see of what God's doing in heaven, of the way that his economy is uh, structured, the way that his... Uh, goodness is worked out towards us and we get to the final conclusion of that as Christ is high priest and when it says that you know the the futility of this system in this world is made perfect in Christ it says for it is impossible I'm reading in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins therefore when he comes into the world he says sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me in whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. And after saying the above, sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this, 
we, by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So it's talking about that making that way for us to be in union with God. Right? That is a good God. So the next part of the question is, can he be trusted? If a good God, if that's his character, and his character actually affects us, it brings life to us. His goodness brings our blessing. Can he be trusted? And it's not a rhetorical question, although I'm sure you would answer yes. Um, there's some people I know that have said to me that would say to you right now that if God is good, then how could he, knowing all people throughout this all time in the future, created us in the womb, how could he, knowing that any human being or anyone would ever go eternally and eternally in hell, how could a good God or a loving God? Knowing that some would be lost. Right. Mm-hmm. And that some would be saved. Right. So you have to look at both sides of that. Yes, I do. If God had taken no action in creation, um, there would not be an expression of his goodness. Right? And uh, part of that expression of goodness is to create something that is unique. He created the angelic beings. He created humanity in his own image. Right? So God did something that only God could do as an expression of his goodness. And the result of that is that a part of that creation would be in communion with him, would share in his goodness forever. But a part would be lost forever. And sometimes we focus on one side and we don't look at the other. And that's one of the objections. I mean, when you hear the gospel presented, that there is life in Christ, the message that comes with that is there is death outside of Christ. And when you look at the religious movements of our century and past few centuries, you have the... the, uh, Fire and brimstone, that's the tradition I came up in, where uh, being lost is presented, and what you need is you need your, your fire escape, right? And then there's the other side that's presented as God is good and loving, and in him there, there is no ungoodness, right? Um, and we want to come into that love, but it neglects the the judgment on sin. So, you have to give it equal treatment. If God is good, then, sure enough, given the creation and the way he made it, there was a possibility for evil. How did evil come in? Is evil from God? Did he create it? That's one of the questions. Where did it come from? It came because of a possibility because of the greatness of God's creation. He created beings with the ability to choose. And uh, we're doing a study in Revelation on Friday night, and we finally got through chapter uh, 20 this last week, which talks about um, the one who started the rebellion, 
who started, introduced sin into God's creation, and that that spread because sin does that. It's kind of like, uh, uh, how many of you have seen the movie The Matrix? I've seen the movie The Matrix, only a couple. Well, there's this one scene in The Matrix where uh, this person, Neo, wants to understand um, more about reality. He wants to understand a deeper reality. And so he's offered a choice. He can either ignore it and live in bliss, not knowing the truth, or he can know the truth, um, which may not be so cool in some aspects, right? That there's, there's evil that exists in reality. And so at this scene where he's entering into the deeper story, he takes the red pill, not the blue pill, he touches a mirror. He sees this image of himself, and he's perplexed by it, and he touches it, and it sticks to him. And what happens is, is it ends up taking him over, right? It sticks to him. That's like what sin is. You know, you touch it, and it's, it's like tar, you know, on the beach. Once you, you step on it, man, how do you get that tar off? That's what sin is, except for we have solvent that takes tar off. There's, there's nothing that takes sin off except for God dealing with that. And that's the ugly reality. Sin entered in, and in the very end, the one, the last one, the one who introduced it is thrown out of God's kingdom into the lake of fire. That's the story. And so when you look at that, um, you see that there are many that are saved and enjoy communion with God forever. And there are, there are some that are lost through sin. That was, is it necessary? God created uh, life in such a way that it allowed sin. He didn't create sin. He didn't desire sin. But it was possible. And it entered in. And because it entered in, it has to be eradicated. Because it is the extinguisher of life. It will stick to everything. And corrupt everything. And ultimately, it has to be dealt with. Because it can't be part of God. Does that help a little bit? Yes. Is God good? Absolutely. Is that easy? No. That's why he's God and I'm not. I don't have to make the judgments that he has to make. And I'm glad for that. I'm the creature, not the creator. I like to answer that question with a simple illustration. A young married couple knows ahead of time that if they have kids, those kids are going to get into trouble. Those kids are going to have accidents. Some of them might lose an arm or a leg. They might go off to war. They might do all kinds of things that are bad. The things might things that are not good will happen to those kids. But they go ahead and have kids anyway. Right. Because, you know... Because that's the expression of love. The kids are still a blessing. Right. That's the expression of love. It's that way with God and His creation that He knew ahead of time that a lot of things were going to go wrong, but He went ahead and did it anyway. He also knew that some things were going to go right. Mm -hmm. And that He planned that from the beginning. So... When we, we ask the question, is God good, 
We're asking all of those questions like you just asked, Daniel. What about those that perish? And maybe our thought is maybe it's unjust. So when we're saying, is God good? We're saying, is he just? Right? Does he allow injustice to occur in his kingdom? And that's what the world would tell you. So uh, last week, Pastor Bob gave you a little bit more uh, drill down into Job. What Job is, is it's a courtroom scene where God is on trial. And what's on trial is, his, is he good and can he be trusted? <clears throat> and God says, you know, I don't have to speak in my own defense. I will call my star witness. And he calls Job. And all of those questions that get asked about the nature of goodness and justice get asked. And Job says, even if he slay me, I will choose him. Right? Because he knows the true character of God. Now, does he get all of his questions answered? No. Because it isn't about Job. Well, it's not a it's not a put down of Job. Rather, it's a declaration about who God is. And Job is asked to, with the vision that he has of God, he's asked to trust God. Is God good, and can he be trusted? Job said, "Yep." Final word. That's Job's final word. God can be trusted. I have nothing more to say on the matter. And that's the end of the court court uh, trial, by the way. Uh, and what you find is after that, the narrator steps in and says, oh, and I want to tell you some more of the backstory of Job. He was a man that endured in his calling. And as a result of enduring in his calling, he experienced the blessedness of being in communion with God, which was double what everything that he could have lost if he'd have held on to it. Right? <clears throat> so the narrator tells us, yeah, God's goodness isn't just within himself, but it affects us. So it's, it's a question. Is God good and can he be trusted? <clears throat> As we've been going through Hebrews, we've been answering the question, is God good? He is so good that he wants and for all time dealt with the sin problem. He is so good that he once and for all time eliminated the death consequence. He conquered death. Right? That's how good God is. And that affects us. And it challenges us. And the question is then, can he be trusted? And I'd like to, I know we've been through chapter 11, but I'd like to read chapter 11 as we get on to the, the primary exhortation of Hebrews, which we're going to see starting in, in chapter 12. So the question is, is God good and can he be trusted? We're going to answer the can he be trusted now and what that looks like. And we answer yes because we come to church and this is our belief system. But we answer yes because we know. We know more than just in our own personal experience. We know in the revelation of God. 
He's told us and shared with us history such that we can see that, sure enough, he can be trusted. I have evidence, and it's right here, preserved for me. So let's go ahead and read through chapter 11. Would somebody like to read through chapter 11? There's 30, uh, 40 verses. Somebody like to read through 40 verses of chapter 11? Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. By faith Abel offered God a better sacrifice than Cain did. By faith he was commended as a righteous man when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith he still speaks even though he is dead. By faith Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. He could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham, who called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, Abraham, even though he was past age, (coughs) Sarah herself was barren, was able to become a father because he considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he is as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was or when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions about his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger, and he persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. 
They faith the walls of Jericho fell after the people had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sodden too, they were put to death by the sword. They were about in sheepskins, went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And the world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all condemned for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised, but had been promised. God had to plan something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So, the question has been asked, is God good, and can he be trusted? And the author of Hebrews says, yeah, and this is how I know. And he starts listing it off. So, he does a, starting on page one, starts going through. And finally, he gets to a point, he says, you know, I just, I can't even list all of this. The story is so great about that God can be trusted that says here, even those that died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, they died in faith based on knowing what the promise of God was, even though they didn't see it fulfilled in their lifetime. So as we go through the various trials in our life, and we ask the question, is God good? Can he be trusted? That's what this is here for. This is exposition to answer the question and give you lots of evidence that God can be trusted. So the next question is, if God is good and can, he can be trusted, so what? What does that mean to me? Is this just a story we read? It's encouraging, you know, like the DVD you put on and the hero always wins. And we know that that's, we call that Hollywood because it doesn't reflect our life. We don't see the hero winning. Um, we see people losing their houses, losing their lives, losing their children, losing their spouses. I mean, it, the list goes on and on and on. We see it within this church. We see it within our work. We see it within our community. It's not Hollywood. You know, so now they're trying to do reality shows to show the, the seamy side of life. <laughs> because people got tired of, of Hollywood hero always wins. But, you know... In our family, we, um, my wife does not like to see the unhappy ending, no matter how much it tells a redemption story. She wants to know that, that God is good in the sense that that affects me in a blessed way. Right? And what we have here is we have people, because they knew that this was true, gave everything. 
and died based upon a promise, holding, holding true to that God is, is faithful in delivering that which he promises. So what? So what? How now shall we live? That's the question. But one of the things I would say is that, and we skipped over, and nobody has asked me about it yet, is verse 6 in chapter 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So there's a hint as to what, so what? So what is, is that this should affect us in such a way that we do that which is pleasing to God. We believe Him. And believing Him means something. It affects the way that you behave. Remember way back when, when I drew the picture of the, the heart, and I said, out of the, out of the heart um, come all of the issues of life, come your thoughts, and from your thoughts come your actions, and from your actions come your habits, and from your habits uh, comes your destiny, and there's a few other steps in there. It all goes back to what the state of your heart is. If you actually believe God, it will affect how you live. And what happens every day is we ask this question, is God good and can he be trusted? And so what? What am I going to do with that? With the federal government doing the things that the federal government are doing, with shootings that happen in schools and businesses, what am I going to do? How am I going to live? Chapter 12. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. I'm going to break that paragraph there. The first three verses are the major theme one of the major themes. I should, I, this is this, the core of the Hebrew message. So this, um, whoever the author is, the sermon that he crafted is all about fixing our eyes on Jesus. I know that because I see it in other parts of the letter. If we take a look at uh, chapter 2, verse 9, in talking about um, the humanity of Christ, it says, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We do see him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. This is who he is. We look at... Uh, Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. 
and he now begins his trek towards the exposition on high priest and the, and the covenant. Take a look at 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the whole point when the author drops down in his exposition and he gets to the exhortation, this is it. This is where we should be looking. If you really trust God, if he can be trusted, and you really believe that, this is what you do. You lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles and run with endurance the race that is set before us. So everybody in here has been called. Nobody, well, a few people sign up for marathons. My son is one. Uh, he's training for a marathon. Um, I was a distance runner when I was in high school and college. Um, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> too much I'm carrying around. But um, I know what it means to, to train, right? Many people in here know what it means to train, to, to uh, have a promise, a goal that you're shooting towards, and lay everything on the line for that. That's what we're told to do. We're told to put it all on the line for Jesus. Fixing our eyes on him because he's, because he's the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So let's take a look at what that, what that means. I mean, there, we're given three things here. We know that he is uh, the author. What does that mean, that he's the author of our faith? Any ideas? He came up with the original uh, Right, so we think of the author as the originator of the, the whole idea of faith, right? Does God have faith? Or does God know everything so he doesn't need faith? Does God have faith? So we think God's got it easy. He's got all power, all knowledge. There's nothing, there's nothing at risk for him. Right? Yeah. A lot's at risk. He has faith in us. Do you ever think about that? You know, we have faith in God. He has faith in us. Last week when Pastor Bob was here giving us kind of a preview of Job. I mean, God literally picks the fight with Satan. Yeah. Say, hey, have you looked at my buddy Job? Yeah. <laughs> but Job wished he could have said, uh, how, you know, have you looked at my friend Bob? Bring it back to you. So God had confidence in Job, right? That Job would give the, the right testimony for God. Now, Job. Could have broke down. 
But it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. So there is a, uh, what faith is, is it's a belief about the outcome or, or the quality of something in a way that you operate as if it's already true. Right? And God does that for us. Why does God do that? He believes things about us. He believed things about Job that were not yet true. That came to be true. And what I'll say is, is that when, when God has faith in us, it changes who we are. Um, because my wife believes in me, it changes who I am when I walk out the door in the morning. And it changes the way that I respond and the way that I act in the world. No. If, if God's omniscient, how can he have faith? How can he have faith? Because he knows the mm-hmm. end. He knows the end game. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Jesus, when Jesus... Um, laid aside his uh, divine uh, he didn't lay aside his divine attributes he laid uh, aside his, some of his divine privilege in other words when, uh, when someone dissed him he didn't you know, point at him have lightning bolt and shoot out zap him rather he endured it took full humanity upon himself um, he had faith in his father but he had full knowledge John chapter 2 at the end uh, that many people in Jerusalem believed in him but Jesus did not believe in them uh, because uh, he knew that that was only superficial see it says because he knows what's in the man he knows what's there and so how, how does God have faith well it was demonstrated in Jesus it was demonstrated with knowledge what what he could trust and what he couldn't trust right? and he knew he couldn't trust um, the hearts of men in the sense of being part of the world kingdom because those that are of the world um, they trust in the world right? they expect that um, if you have a bigger army that you're going to win they expect that if you have more money you're going to be safe right? what does history tell us about big armies and lots of money. Jericho. Yeah, Jericho fell. Um, there was uh, the, the time when uh, the armies from, uh, I want to, I'm trying to remember the name of the king, Jehoshaphat, uh, and they were coming against uh, Judah, and, uh, and they were outnumbered. They had an inferior army, were totally unprepared. And uh, he prayed, and God said, I want you to go out and I want you to sing on your way to the site of the battle. I want you to sing as you're going to meet the armies, because I'm going to rout them for you. Right? So, superior numbers didn't, in the world didn't mean anything. Superior wealth didn't mean anything to Herod. 
Um, if you go to Israel today, uh, you go down near Jordan, and there's a place where he didn't like one mountain being higher than another. So he hired workers to actually remove the top of one mountain and move it to the top of another so that he, that mountain would be higher. <laughs> he was the king, and he had all the money and could do what he wanted to do. And he died a horrible death. And just to make sure that people would mourn when he died, he made sure that the, the children of the royalty were slain so that they would be really sad and mourn for Herod. Right? This man had lots of money. Didn't do anything. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. And so even though God knows the end, even though everything is going to happen, it's still faith is the evidence of That's right. God knows how it's going to end. And uh, his faith is demonstrated that he's willing to tell you the end from the beginning. Do we think we can upset the plan of God? Where's God's faith? Can God have faith? I think so. Uh, is there anywhere um, in Scripture that says that God is omniscient or omnipresent or, or yes, yes? So uh, we go through the attributes of God. There's Scripture that supports that. Um, so we know that that is true of uh, the essential nature of God. Um, But what we have is we have this idea of faith as wishful thinking. God doesn't have wishful thinking. He he, uh, believes what he knows is true. Isn't another way of saying faith is confidence? Confidence and trust in something? Right. So what we're called to do is in the face of Everything that says to the contrary in the world, because the world is a completely different system. We're called to believe what God said is true. We're called to uh, believe the promise of what he says and how he's going to bring about our blessing and uh, his program of being in communion with him forever. And that when you do this, it actually changes you. It changes who you are, no matter what you might face. So there are people here that faced uh, death. I mean, you would think that that's one of the great trials. Right now I'm wondering that because I'm alive and I'm, I got trials at work and I'm thinking, man, I'd rather be dead. <laughs> but what, what you see here listed is people that went through physical trials, emotional trials, uh, intellectual trials, you know, up to the point of actually laying their life on the line. But they, they believed, Abraham believed, that his child of promise, that if he obeyed what God said, was real and true, that God had the power to raise Isaac from the grave. Right? And that he would not die. Just like when... Uh, I think Bob shared about Job last week when Job got double of everything but he only got one replacement set of kids. That's because his kids didn't die. They're safe with God. So when God says that that's true, what he asks of us is to actually act on the truth that he has declared.
just as he acts on the truth that he has declared. And that's what chapter 12 is telling us. Okay, so what? Yeah. Maybe some of the confusion on these questions is the difference between does God have faith and does God need faith? Well, yeah. The answer for the yeah. second one is yes for us yes. as well. Uh, you know, yes, God knows the end from the beginning, mm-hmm. so he doesn't need faith. Right. But he has faith in what he knows. Right. right? He has that confidence. Um, there's something else you're going to say in one way, so I guess I should. Well, yeah, so, so God doesn't need faith, right? Um, but God has faith, and He demonstrated that. Um, oh, say we need faith. Do we like, need faith? It's just like, you know, James chapter 1, the kind of joy when we go through various trials, because right. it's for, for the perfecting of your faith. It's but, like, but what I would say is, is that there are those that do not believe that they need faith. Now, we would say you absolutely need faith because without faith, you are not going to enter into that promise. And without entering into that promise, you end up outside. And there is no life outside of God. So therefore, you have to, if you want life, you have to embrace the promise of God because there is no life anywhere else. It's not that we have life within ourselves. We are not God. Jesus made that really clear. I want to ask you, his wife, she didn't have the faith Job had. She told me this. First God and die. Yeah. I just believe it. Yeah, why so. Why do I go through 10 more pregnancies? Yeah. <laughs> when you think about the, you know, the practical of that. Yeah. So, um, one of the, the big discouragements for us, or one of the big uh, enemies of us, is discouragement and bitterness, not trusting God. Discouragement is about not trusting God, right? So uh, we heard that Karen and I were watching Anna Green Gables last night. I don't know if you've ever seen Anna. I've seen a couple of thumbs up. Anna Green Gables, right? Marilla, Anne's adopted mother, right? Um, so she's an old maid, and they get this girl by mistake, and um, they realize. Um, Matthew and Marilla, this old couple, realize that um, this is the providence of God. Matthew realizes it early and says, you know, maybe this isn't about us getting help. Maybe it's about us helping her. Right? That God did this such that we could provide something that, that only, you know, God created this situation. And there's a time when he then dies. And Marilla's comforting Anne and, and she basically says, you know, we shouldn't question God's goodness. Sure enough, we have discouragement if we don't trust God's goodness. But if we believe in God's goodness, we should not be discouraged. That doesn't mean that we're not sad. It just means that we shouldn't be discouraged. Because discouragement can lead to a, a worse pill. can lead to bitterness. So if we read on through here, says, for consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. 
I'm going to come back to this despising the shame piece. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten uh, the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, are disciplined, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak, the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which there no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness spring up, cause, uh, springing up causes trouble, and by it many are defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance though he sought for it with tears. So a lot packaged in there. Let's see how close I can come to unpackaging this. Um, there is this thing that discouragement or lack of faith can lead to uh, bitterness. Or um, it leads to an attitude of flippancy. Such that uh, and, the, and the character that's portrayed here is Esau. Esau had this, this root of bitterness against his brother, against his father, against his God. And you see it play out in his life as unbelief. So when people fall from faith, fall from actually acting and in, in trusting God and acting in a way um, that recognizes that what God said is true is true, what his promise is is truly his promise, regardless of what the world says. When you get to that place, you start uh, despising God and his promises. You start questioning um, God's goodness and answering, no, God isn't really good. Because there are people that starve over in Africa. Because in the case of Anna Green Gables, because... Matthew, who loved her, died. Right? And Marilla says, no. No. You don't want to go there. You don't want to enter into bitterness. You don't want... Because that's, that is a root that will destroy you. It is the opposite of faith. And the example of that in Jesus is that he endured the cross. Right? So he knew what was coming his way. He fully understood what it meant to be crucified and to have the sin of the world laid upon him. Not just the world in that time in that community, but all of humanity's sin that he was atoning for. He knew what that meant. And he endured that despising the shame. 
because he knew that that was not true. See, what happens is, is we despise God when we get into a place of bitterness. We don't believe that he is good and that he can be trusted. And we don't despise that which God calls of, of no value. To despise is to um, hold it of no value. Right? That's what it means here. He held of no value the shame that he would endure. Because he knew that God had a better plan. He did this because he knew the joy that was set before him. The joy of redeeming all of humanity. Of making a way that only God could make for people to be with him. He believed what the Father had said. God believed God. Right? Jesus demonstrates faith and that he knew that the outcome of God's plan was infinitely good. And as a result of that, he held of no value everything else. And that's why he endured it. And now he, is, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And we're asked to look to him, the author and perfecter of faith. We're asked to look to him so that we don't lose heart, so that we don't get discouraged. Because discouragement is going to lead to that bitterness. That root of bitterness springing up causes trouble. And by it, many may be defiled. That's what happens. So when, when, the, you know, when the, uh, the author of Hebrews is giving us this great exposition on that God is good, that he can't be trusted. Here's all the evidence that he can't be trusted. Now, so what? So don't get discouraged. Rather, endure. Run a race like you're running a marathon. That's what he's asking us, encouraging us to do. That's what God has asked us. And the amazing thing is, is that um, it's not on you to do it right. Right? If your eyes are fixed on Jesus, you're looking at what he has done and you're trying to do the same. So we say, well, I sin all the time. I get up in the morning and my conscience you know, bears witness against me that uh, I'm a liar and a cheat and a murderer and all the different things that, that the enemy wants to accuse me of. That's true. And guess what? God knows all those things are true. And he has faith in you. He chose you anyway. That's where I'm going to finish up this morning. It's in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to start in, uh, I'll start in, in verse 26. Chapter 8 of Romans. I have this little note, and I've shared this with the class before. I put this in my margin, my Bible. At the lowest point in my life, all the things that were true about me, God knew. He loves us more than we can know. Romans 8, 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the one that we fix our eyes on. That's the God who loves us and died for us. Let's go ahead and end here. And we'll unpack this more next week. Ponder faith this week. What it really means to have faith. It's not wishful thinking. That's buying a lottery ticket. Lord, just thank you so much for your word that you preserved for us to uh, give us evidence that um, first to record your promises for us and then to give us evidence that your promises will be fulfilled. Some will be fulfilled in our lifetime, others you've already fulfilled, some are yet to come, Lord, but we know that you are true and sure and can be trusted. We know that because of your word. Lord, we know that because of how you've intervened in our lives today. And Lord, I just thank you for that. I thank you for recording this, that we won't become discouraged and grow weary. Lord, encourage us, because there's so many things that are discouraging in the world today. There's so many things, Lord, and just ask for your help to keep our eyes focused on you and not looking around at the world and judging things by... uh, the eyes of men, but judging things through your eyes, Lord, as you see them. Lord, uh, we just ask for your work in our lives to transform us in that way. And Lord, help us also to share that with others who don't see, Lord, that they might come to know you and how much you love them. Lord, we thank you for this time together today. We thank you for your provision in our lives, for your protection for us. Lord, we thank you for your calling, even though sometimes we're called the very challenging and hard things. Lord, we thank you for that. And Lord, we ask that you would be with Bob this morning as he brings further exposition in your word, as he uh, dives into the Psalms and and the heart of your word in response to you. Lord, uh, we just ask that you would bless him uh, abundantly with your spirit, that he would speak to many who maybe have never heard the message this morning, or those that need encouragement. Lord, we ask for that, that you would empower him. Lord, we thank you for our church, 150 years of service. 
um, and the opportunity to continue serving in our community today. Lord, we thank you for all of this. In your name we pray. Amen.